Hey, everybody. Ryan here. And before we get into the podcast this week, Mike and I thought it was necessary to give a bit of a trigger warning up front. This movie led us to some really great conversation. And in fact, we talked for over two and a half hours, which we're not going to subject you to the whole thing. But that means you won't hear the story about my coworker Uriah falling through the ceiling of a job site we were on. And you won't hear us pontificating for 20-some minutes about the greatest X-Files episodes. But we do end up getting to the point where we talk about suicide and how it's affected us personally and the people that we love. So if that's something that is too heavy for you to listen to right now, go ahead and skip this episode. And if you are dealing with thoughts of suicide, I can tell you firsthand that talking to someone can be super helpful and it can get better. And if you don't have someone close to you that you feel comfortable talking about those sorts of things with, you can always reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Enjoy the episode, everybody. When you look at things like the, the Stoic philosophies of Epictetus and others, each person lives their own lives, and yeah. the only control we have in the world is the way we react to the situations given to us, right? Like, that's 100%. literally the only control we have in this Absolutely. world. Absolutely. <laughs> Just cut it in such a way that I don't get calls from friends who are worried that I'm going to go to hell. Dude, most of your friends think you're going to hell anyways. It's probably true. Hey everybody, welcome to the Cinemarter podcast. This is a podcast where we watch movies and then we try to discuss the psychological, spiritual, and mythological themes in those movies. And then sometimes we try to glean a little bit of life lessons from those themes. My name is Ryan and I am a maker and a uh, freelance uh, videographer and I do a lot of different things. And I am joined today by my co-host, my good friend, Mike Petro. Mike, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Michael Petro. I am a bunch of things. But uh, the reason I matter here is because I have degrees in psychology, comparative religions, and mythology, and I wrote my dissertation on transformational patterns in stories. It's a lot of nerd <laughs> shit. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, and, uh, I know you and I had talked about trying to do a different movie in the interim between yeah. these two movies and obviously it didn't happen. Things got out of hand, uh, yeah. not out of hand, but things got uh, away from us. Yeah. Life has gotten busy, but here we are. And, um, <clears throat> I think we should talk about the movie. Yeah. Um, let's do it, man. so this week we're going to talk about Groundhog Day. The Bill Murray film from 1993. And uh, this is not a Bill Murray podcast. It just so happens that our first two episodes are Bill Murray. All right. So I won't <laughs> suggest we do Ghostbusters next, but I, I was thinking about it. One um, day we could do B Ghostbusters um, and we could have a special guest because that is um, our friend Tom's favorite movie of all time. Oh, man. I'm in. Um, which I think we talked about having him on a different episode. But anyway... Uh, but yeah, we're going to talk about, uh, Groundhog Day today. This was a, it was released in 1993. The movie, for those of you that may not have watched it, which I mean, where have you been living if you haven't watched Groundhog Day? Um, the, the movie is, uh, basically, um, the guy's name is Phil. He is a, 
uh, TV reporter. He is a weatherman, specifically. And he has to go to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, to what, do what? a... <laughs> to do a uh, a piece on Groundhog Day. And what happens is he does his piece. He's kind of a... I mean, honestly, the parallels between him and Scrooge are kind of, uh, you know, pretty palpable in this The movies movie. are of a piece. Yeah, we'll get yeah, to that. Yeah, I'm sure. so, it's interesting. Um, he, you know, so he's kind of a grumpy dude. He's not super happy with life. He does this piece... He uh, goes back to his uh, bed and breakfast and then falls asleep and then wakes up the next morning and it's the same day. And the whole movie revolves around the fact that he is living the same day over and over and over again uh, for and we'll get into this later. It it ranges, you know, there's estimates from it could have been uh, 10 years to 10,000 years that he is living the same day over and over and over again until he gets it right, so to speak, or figures out the meaning of what's going on, um, and then he gets out of the loop. Um, and, and that's the, the gist of the movie. Um, and, and, you know, now it's become a, uh, a, a phrase that we use to describe things that are monotonous. You know, we say we're living through a Groundhog Day. In fact, when, <laughs> when Laura and I were watching this movie yesterday, we found it on um, – we were watching it on AMC uh, on the like the streaming AMC thing uh, app or whatever, and I don't know if you've ever watched movies on streaming like cable services, but they show the same commercial every single. They show commercials first of all. Oh my god! And, that's and, a- and they show the same commercial every time. So like halfway through the movie, Laura, like I was literally about to say it, and Laura's like, "I feel like we're living a Groundhog Day right now with these commercials," and it that's was. A- pretty intense yeah. Groundhog Day scenario. It was well, it, ridiculous. It's the it same commercial every time. Anyway, funny go ahead. because it's and, and you know we'll jump into it like the this movie is such a cultural phenomena yep. that it has changed what Groundhog Day means. Totally. 100%. Right? So uh, you know I know we'll, we'll probably talk when we get into it about the, the festival itself and what the movie did for the actual celebration of Groundhog Day. Right. Um, I was shocked because I did a little bit of digging just to remind myself of the context of the movie. And I did not know anything about the crazy drama in the production of this movie, which a lot like Scrooge is a story in and of itself. Right. Um, And it's a wild thing to revisit because spot on, you know, I've had friends multiple times. I had a friend one time. She's like, I got to quit my job. And I was like, why? And she said, it's just Groundhog Day. And that's all she needed to say. I got it. It's yep. like the same yep. thing every day. Can't do it anymore. Yep. Uh, and I and I felt it. You know, I was like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, okay, so listen, jumping into it. Uh, <laughs> did you like this movie? When you rewatch it, let's start here. Is this a good movie? I am happy to report that I still like this movie. Which is funny because the difference between this movie and the last one we did is... So year, when this movie came out in 1993, I don't know if I – I don't remember if I saw it. I don't think I saw it in the theater. I probably saw it on VHS at some point on a rental or something. And I remember my memory, my recollection is that I hated this movie when I saw it the first time. Yeah. Because <laughs> I did not get it. And then years later, probably late 90s, I don't know. Who knows? It was probably on – AMC or USA or whatever and I was laying in bed watching you know and it came on and I watched it and I got it and I was like oh my god yeah. this 
movie is so freaking good. So I went from hating it to loving it in one viewing, and I'm happy to report that watching it again, I was... Dude, it's great. It's hilarious. Dude, it's, there's so many funny points in this I, movie. I had that experience on my rewatch, like both of that, because okay. I watched it again, and we'll get into the particulars. Um, I did not like the beginning of the movie. Mm. Like, my my going in, I was like, this is, this is garbage. This is nothing like I remember it. This is oh, a wow. shoddy movie. And then once it locked in, okay. I was like, no, this is brilliant. <laughs> So I I liked the beginning of it less than I remember, and I liked the end of it more. That's Um, amazing. uh, By the time it ended, I was like, this is better than I thought it was. But I'll stand behind my criticism of the lead-in. Uh, it's definitely, I think it's a little clunky in the, in the first act and I'll, or maybe, maybe the first act hasn't aged as well, but it's, but it, it's so strong, uh, in the second, like it, once it gets into the gag and gets rolling along, man. This is genius. Well, I remember my recollection of originally watching it the first time is that I didn't get the gag, mm-hmm. and I and I got bored of the gag. I, mm-hmm. and now, now, granted, when this came out in 93, mm-hmm. I would have been, what, 14, 15? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I was a kid, so I it was probably lost on me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that this is one of those movies where being in on the twist – actually makes it better right and so so the whole thing of like knowing what it is when you sit down to the movie Mm. has actually increases the enjoyment of it whereas like say like you take something like the sixth sense everyone knows the twist to the sixth sense even people who haven't seen the movie know the twist when you sit down and watch it now knowing the twist still a good movie and still really impressive how the twist is pulled off but it's it's not you'll never have the experience again where you're surprised by it groundhog day on the other hand like knowing what you're getting into when you sit down i think it brings so much more nuance and enjoyment out of it i I, I agree yeah i think it's pretty great i agree and as an aside can we talk about the sixth sense for like two seconds here yeah sure when that movie came out right it was like a cultural phenomenon like when that came out yeah like shit hit the fan right and people were freaking out Mm -hmm. i had tickets to go on like whatever a friday night right and Mm -hmm. i all my friends that i was working at guardian insurance company right i had some a couple good friends there and i had told them i'm going friday night everyone knew i was going friday night Mm -hmm. friday at lunch somebody brings up the sixth sense oh dude i'm so sorry my buddy Nick was getting his lunch. He sits down at the table. Everyone's this talking. This always happens ab- to you. They're talking about the sixth sense. He doesn't realize that I haven't seen it. And he says, dude, that was so crazy that he was dead the whole time. Oh, my God. I never got the sixth sense experience. I I'm never so got it. And, dude, sorry. to this day, Nick Keeter, I'm calling you out now. I love you to death. You're the best dude in the world. You're such a loving hippie dude that lives wears tie-dye shirts and you're the greatest dude in the world but dude and sorry to my mom if you ever listened to this but fuck you nick heater for fucking ruining <laughs> didn't six w- what happened oh when you and i went to see the force awakens somebody ruined the han solo death for you i remember yes. that too yes for the theater yes because <laughs> i saw this is it my life this is I my saw life it, and then i saw it again with you immediately after i saw it back to back twice in the same night 
And I remember you were like, I can't believe this. Someone just ruined this for like, me. Like, literally, and that one was, oh. like, hours before. That one was, yeah. like, literally, I had avoided everything on Facebook, everything. Yeah. And then li- literally on purpose said, spoiler, here's what happens. And I was like. That's a real dick move. Anyway. That's a bummer. I, you know, I don't remember the 90s. I, I don't remember the first <laughs> time the I 90s. saw this. Yeah, I don't remember the first time I saw this movie. So I have no concept of that feeling of going like, wait, what's happening? Right, I right. only ever remember seeing this movie knowing what the gag is, which again, totally works. And, and totally. also, sidebar, um, it's like th- this movie, we don't have time to talk about it. This movie inspired that Tom Cruise movie that has two titles. It's called Live, Die, Repeat. It's also called uh, Edge of Tomorrow because they screwed up the marketing and people didn't know what the title is. Whole other thing. Okay. That movie is Groundhog Day with Guns and Aliens. And it's fantastic. Okay, and there's another movie that I just recently watched within the past year that I did not have time to look up that had the same plot as Groundhog Day, but it was had, right. it's not this Tom Cruise movie. Does the Tom Cruise movie have people going into a cave? Uh, no. And repeating, they, they, they have to go into a cave and that starts the day over again? No, 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 no. No, this, okay. the Tom Cruise Whatever. movie is based on a graphic novel called All You Need Is Kill. And okay. basically aliens invade and they're shredding everyone. And what the reason is because they can create time loops, but no one knows it because they don't know what's happening. Okay. He accidentally gets sucked into it. And so there's basically like this Normandy style invasion where they're fighting these aliens. <laughs> and he gets killed every single time and then has to repeat the day. Okay. But he starts to learn. Okay. Um, and what they do in in the in the graphic novel it's playing with the concept of the time loop when they convert it to a movie what they do is it's still very intense and very violent but yeah. they bring humor in okay. and it's done so well Interesting. and it's it's basically groundhog day oh dude you should totally watch it it's groundhog okay. day alien invasion style it's so good. Oh, good but but every time i would watch that movie i'd be like this is this is great and all the yeah. every single every single review i read of it Talked about it being Groundhog Day, the action well, movie version. Well, and the thing is about Groundhog Day, the movie, is um, I was reading some uh, trivia, and, and there's a lot, there's a, a few people who claim that they were the originators of this type of story, and right. that, uh, I forget, who's the writer of this? Danny, Danny Rubin? Is that? Yeah. Yeah, Danny Rubin. And uh, Harold Ramis, um, you know, stole their idea. So who knows what the, what the truth is there, but regardless. It's tough, man, because this idea is it's an archetypal thing, and we'll we'll get into this. But there's it's it's a big idea, right? The yeah. idea of repeating the same thing over and over it really tracks. So yeah, you said you're you weren't a fan of the beginning, the 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 first act of this movie. So let's talk yeah. about that. Talk talk, right. talk talk about what you thought was uh, less than ideal in this the first act of this movie. So here's here's my thought on the lead in. Um, I think. I don't I going in I remember this movie being a masterpiece. So like when it got started, you know, I mean when the movie really gets rolling, it's a it's a series of bits and the bits are great. Mm-hmm. Um and then they're wrapped around a story. But in the, but the lead in like the acting's not amazing, right? right. Yeah. Um the the opening of the script is like I mean the characters are are caricatures. Um yeah. mm-hmm. you know, so that was a little clunky. The sexual politics of these 80s movies are always, to me, so cringe-inducing. 
Like, yeah. like when his character is basically when he's hitting on the love interest, I'm always like, oh my god. And I understand, right? Because they're they're trying to show you like he's not a great guy, and then he becomes a great guy through the course of the movie. But right. there's stuff like I had this involuntary. I'm like, you can't do that in the workplace. That's not okay. Right. Um. So that part, like I said, I, I just will say that I felt it. I suspect that I felt it, and it's probably felt now more than it may have been felt by audiences when they first watch it. Right. Uh, or 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 maybe it's just that you and I, as two white straight dudes, post Me Too, are finally catching up with you know yeah, yeah. you know what women have experienced forever 100%. and and are only now finally cluing into the pain points that we should have picked up on back then i don't know yeah. um probably a little bit of column a a little bit of column b and so that i think that was the that was the the rough part and then and then the kind of the thing that buoyed me was of course you and i are both from pennsylvania so the pennsylvania culture uh <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like i'd you know kill me before i have to go to this small town of pennsylvania again I yeah. found super amusing. Um, yeah. because Which is funny because I think the movie. So I read that the movie was actually filmed in Illinois, Woodstock, mm-hmm. Illinois, not in one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Because yeah, they didn't want to. They didn't want to do the shoot there. Um, which again, I don't know. Like previous to this movie, did you know about Punxsutawney Phil before that? Yeah, that's a good question. I do know based on my research that when they were making this movie, they specifically chose Groundhog Day because there weren't really any movies about Groundhog okay. Day. They want they wanted a focus point and it, it it you know the story didn't could could be set anywhere. Right. But they chose Groundhog Day as a a focal point mm. you know to make this movie. So I most likely probably not. I I don't okay. think I ever knew anything about it. I did read that they said that the way Groundhog Day started was that in the 1880s some friends in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania went into the woods on Candlemas Day to look for sure. groundhogs. Okay. This outing became a tradition and local newspaper editor nicknamed nicknamed the seekers the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club starting in 1887. The search became an official event centered around the groundhog and Punxsutawney Phil, a ceremony that still takes place today. So, so I guess that's how only, it started in you know Pennsylvania. Only in a bunch Pennsylvania, of, folks. Bunch of bros. I'm assuming some. Um, what's what's the drink that our buddy Zach drinks? Uh, Miller High Life? No, not Miller High. Oh. Uh, no, Bush. Bush. Yeah. Bush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. They were probably bring, drinking some bushes back in the 1880s. I think we can assume that libations were a part of the equation. <laughs> exactly. And so it's, an, it's such an interesting mix um, where the – so the reality of Groundhog Day, the weirdness of that, the reality of, of this production, which I hear was crazy, right? They say that this movie basically ended Bill Murray and Harold Ramis's friendship. And they had collaborated on a bunch of stuff, including Ghostbusters – and then they didn't talk till, I, based on what I heard, like right before Ramus died, they finally reconciled. But they didn't talk for years Which after is this movie. Crazy, like mind blowing. And I don't know what happened. I didn't look into it enough to understand why mm-hmm. they they clashed so much. But yeah, that's from what I've read. That's a hundred percent true. Is that this was they clashed so much on this movie that they did not speak until mm-hmm. uh, Harold Ramis was was uh, dying, and then I think Bill Murray reached out to him, and they they reconnected. Uh, yeah. which is which is insane. Yeah, because I mean these two. I mean, 
the amount of stuff that they put out and like the brilliance of both of them. Yeah. Like they're both brilliant in, in yeah. comedy, you know, like mind blowing that this would, I, how do, how does that happen? You know what I mean? It, it mm-hmm. makes you wonder like, obviously they were good friends. They were mm-hmm. great collaborators and it, it, it makes you wonder like, how do you get to a point where yeah. <laughs> something that tight can be uh, shredded? To the point where well, you don't speak to someone for decades, you know? and it seems like part of it is is Bill Murray's style. And I might be wrong about this, but I, if if I remember correctly, w- when we were doing Scrooge, I did some research and I ran across something that said he initially didn't want to do that movie and for some of the same reasons he had resistance to this, which is he prefers working as part of an ensemble. Mm. Like he never wanted to be, he didn't want all the movie to be just on him. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, I suspect, you know, Murray does a bit of improv. So and this was before DVDs and extra features. So I think I read somewhere they said, you know, there's tons of footage on the on the cutting room floor that we'll never see. Right. You know, and, and that's the argument is like, you know, he was the, he was there for 10 full years and the joke is there's there's a ton of right. other takes and other happenings that we'll just never experience because back then there was nowhere to put it. Right. Um but I I guess his kind of improvisational style is not always great for a director who's not used to that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that, I mean, that was definitely the case with uh, Scrooge. That's what they said mm-hmm. was that he just because he improvised so much, it was uh, detrimental to the production. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe that was the case with this. I, I think there was also, I, I read, the one thing I did read that that probably led to some of the disagreement was that Harold Ramis was more focused on the comedy of the movie, whereas in for some reason Bill uh, Bill Murray was more focused on the philosophy of what was being said in this movie. I didn't know and, that, and that's where one thing I read. Who knows, you know, if that's true or not? But that was where they were sort of butting heads a little bit. Was where where the emphasis should be in the movie. Interesting. Well, and it's funny too, because it's a shame that it ruined their friendship. I, I feel like this movie actually strikes a really good balance between the comedy and the philosophy. Cause it's a comedy, but this is some deep shit. Like it really, this movie says something. It says a few things. Totally. And I, speaking as someone, as a creative person who's worked, you know, with, in, in bands and stuff, I, I think that's, that's a key part of, of good mm-hmm. uh, art, right? Is, is conflict, is, is wrestling out those, those different ideas and, yep. and, and working them through creates the best art. Like me and my friends have a, a band that we, it's, it, you know, we joke that it's not a real band. We get together once a year and we record one song. Yeah. And, and we have, very different ideas of how that should work. Yeah. And what inevitably happens is <laughs> at some point we argue and we fight. Yeah. And, but in the end we create something that we're all really, really happy yeah. with is yeah. because we, we have this tension of, of these creative ideals that are, are bouncing back and forth between one another. And, yep. and, and what comes out of it is something beautiful. And I think probably that's what happened here, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, I think this movie is, probably more significant than anyone ever gives it credit for but i don't think it's lost right like we said it's it basically became a living metaphor in our culture yeah, right it, it became you know it would have been memed <laughs> in yeah. this day and age but it it um it's a really for me it's a really really good example of show don't tell because the movie definitely has a message that is communicated 
But there's also a message that comes not in anything that's said, but just by what happens. Like this idea of a character being stuck in a loop. I don't think there's a single person who's ever watched this movie who, if they're being honest, it doesn't grab them somehow. Like we've all been stuck and it lands differently for everyone because we get stuck in different ways. And there's a ton of metaphysical stuff we can get into. But, um, But the metaphysics, I think, always works because it's also based in real everyday life and we've all been in that loop one way or another totally and i think also like i think it's easy to put yourself in the position of bill murray's Mm -hmm. character like you talked about earlier the 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 fact that all the 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 cringeworthy you know sexual antics of the first act yep or 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 once he starts the loop and he starts like with the woman at the the diner that he, Mm -hmm. he he uses the, the loop to his sexual advantage, yep. you know, I, I think, you know, if we're being honest with ourselves, I think any one of us could see ourselves pulling some dark, dirty stuff. Sure. If yep. we were given the opportunity to use a time loop mm-hmm. to our advantage. And I think not to say that we would do that necessarily, but he robs a uh, an armored car. He, you yep. know what I mean? Like, I think any single person in the world could put themselves in that position and say, yeah, I would, I'd probably do some dark stuff, you know. Yeah. And I think that well, speaks hugely too. <laughs> and that's and that's the kind of like the the moral journey of his character because it starts with him first he's miserable that it's happening and then at one point he goes there's no consequences, right? right. He realizes that because he he repeats the same day there are no consequences. And eventually what you realize is there are consequences. <laughs> He's carrying the consequences by the time you get to the third act of the movie. It's just that the consequences aren't external. They're internal. Um, and, and again, that's where, you know, we'll get into the metaphysics of that. But it's really, really brilliant. Um, and it's really subtle. And it's really well done. Uh, yeah. But yeah, of course, absolutely. Who wouldn't who wouldn't run rob the armored car and then? Um, well, know. it talks about so one one commentary that I saw was talking about how it sort of is talking about the stages of grief, right? Like it's it's sort of going through like all the different stages you might go through. Like it, yeah. it's, it's 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 he's he starts out by denying that it's yep. happening, but like being very self indulgent, right? Absolutely. And then, then he realizes there's no consequences. And eventually he gets to the point where it takes a very, very dark turn where oh, yeah. he's trying to kill himself, which yeah. I think, you know, again, is like a very, you know, for somebody like me who has dealt with depression or has dealt with yeah. uh, existential issues like this, it's very relatable. Like, you know, you're stuck in this thing and what what does it matter? You know what yeah. I mean? And then he eventually gets to this place where he reconciles and he starts realizing, well, wait a minute, what if I actually took stock in what's happening around me, yep. you know? And yep. I mean, he, he goes through all these different stages and it, it, it is a beautiful metaphor. Um, oh my God. Listen, we'll come back to this later, but the best line in the whole movie, and it hits like a sledgehammer um, and it works on so many different levels is he says, I've killed myself so many times, I don't even exist anymore. Mm. And it's just <laughs> like, and, and what I love about that line is, you know, if you talk to uh, a nihilist, it means one thing. If you're talking about depression, it means something else. If you talk to a Buddhist, it means mm. something else. Like it just, to me, that's, that is the turning point in the movie. 
Um, it's also like if there's if there's a point where they wink at the audience and they're like, in case you're not getting it, here it is. Yeah. That's that moment. <laughs> yeah. um, and then he becomes a good person, of course, at the end of the film. But that's what it really boils down to is he says, I've killed myself so many times I don't even exist anymore. And so you look at a film like this where he's stuck in a loop. Um, and basically it, it's kind of a, a bit like there's a lot of spiritual systems and religious systems that believe in reincarnation, mm-hmm. believe that when, when, you know, him, his day ends and then he repeats it. And the reincarnation is more like your life ends. And then usually because you're stuck in karma or something like that, you reboot right. and you do it all over again. Um, the, the whole reason and we can get into that because that's a lot of fun to talk about. But the whole reason that belief system tracks with people and feels real is because we've all also experienced that in our own lives, mm-hmm. right? We've all been stuck in a loop. Right. We've also, you know, uh, we've also all experienced the samsara of the self, samsara's reincarnation. We, we all recognize that we've changed Um, in our own lifetime, you're not who you were five, 10 years ago. I'm not who I was five, 10 years ago. It's like a whole different person. And a lot of times there are deaths in between those things. So it's, it's pretty wild, but you know, so like, let's start here. I would say to you, like, where do you find yourself in the story? Where Where does, where does the loop concept, where does that hit you? Where Where does does it, where do you most feel it? Because while you think about it, I'll say, like, I, I, there's so many, like, deep places and metaphysical places we could go with it. But also, I think about, you know, the Groundhog Day experience of, like, patterns in my life that I wish I could change, mm. but I realize are there. Like, making the same mistake more than once, yeah. you know, where I'm like, God, how is it that I'm, I'm in a different relationship or I'm at a different job mm. or I'm in a different place, I'm a di- different decade in my life – but I feel like a dog chasing his tail. I'm still in this same thing that keeps happening over and over again. And, and some of us have experienced that at intense extremes. And then other of us, it's a little bit more gentle. But that's real, right? That's a real human experience. Yeah, I mean, for me, I would say that, like, you know, I think I would, I would, I don't know how to word this, but I would say that in my last big life-changing experience that happened to me, I was I was living a a certain type of experience over and over again, mm-hmm. right? And it took a long time before I got out of that experience, and it was painful and it was hurtful, and it and it was yep. I was making bad mistakes, you know, just like allowing uh, you could say it was abuse, you know, I was I was yeah. allowing abuse to happen to me, yep. right? And and I, and I eventually got out of that abuse, and and the beauty was sort of um, getting to that next level and saying like, oh. <laughs> I don't have to I don't I don't have to rob the Auburn car. You know what right. I mean? Like I don't right. have to do that. Like that's okay. Like that was fulfilling or 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 it was satisfying some itch in my in my being at that time, mm-hmm. but it wasn't ultimately good for me. And right. and 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 I transitioned into this next thing. And I think right. the beauty of that is 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 not just in that and and saying like, "Oh, I've made it to this next level and I'm better." Is recognizing that like right now what I'm doing Right. is probably not what I'm going to be doing five years from now and, right. and being okay with that and saying like, right. oh, this whole thing, this, yep. no, if I get to live another 10 years or if I get to live another 40 years, yep. it's all a transition. It's all right. recognizing right. that like, you know, every single thing that so much of our lives loop and, and are the same Absolutely. thing, whether, you know what I mean? And it's all about yeah. like 
tomorrow I have a chance to do it again, and it could be better than it was before. And it's going to change no matter what. And that's and that's is the genius of uh, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes in Hebrew wisdom literature we mentioned it last time yep. once again yep. or the middle of the Bible if you don't know what that is <laughs> it it has this idea of it starts with this notion that like the sun rises and the sun sets and it's usually yep. translated it starts with this everything is meaningless but the deeper mm. translation is actually it's all just breath it's all inhale and exhale yep. um, and in that book he starts out with saying like you know what? I just kind of indulged in stuff at one point. If I wanted to yeah. eat something, yeah. I ate. If I wanted to do something, I did it. If I wanted mm-hmm. to buy something, I could because he could, right? He's, he's the, one of the richest and most powerful men in the world. The, the, the book is written in the style of as if King Solomon was, was the one talking. And the idea is that in indulging, you learn something about it. And eventually right. you, 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 you do rob the armored car and you do you know do selfish things and then at a certain point it becomes empty it becomes meaningless there's an episode of the twilight zone i think or maybe outer limits i don't remember where a character dies and in the afterlife he's told like well now you can have anything that you want and so he kind of goes through the episode and anything he wants he has and then by the end he's very very unhappy to have all his wishes fulfilled and the character who's like his guide at one point he's like well this is a really miserable heaven and the guy's like oh (laughs) i never said this was heaven and then you and then the twist is you realize he's actually in hell and hell is getting everything you want because of course you don't really know what's good for you the the tv show the good place at least the first season operates on the same principle um and and so like that's kind of an interesting thing. So he moves beyond that initial kind of, um, well, I'll just do whatever I want. There's no consequences. And, and and again, but that's the heartbreaking part where that seems really empty to him. Right. And he, but he does learn, right? right. That's the ideas that he learns. And that's the, that's the thing that unfortunately for us, because we live in a culture where we lost touch with what our main culture's religion originally taught about the afterlife we we have this like very static idea people people assume in this culture that you die and you go to heaven or hell right that's the right. primary religion and that's not what the original teaching was that's not what the original teaching was in Judaism or Christianity or any of the cultures that influenced them and in theory anything you believe about the afterlife or metaphysics should actually give you like real practical teaching that that matters today right that's the point it should be something useful and the the whole idea in the olden days <laughs> about the afterlife, if it wasn't like a heaven, if there was a hell, if there was punishment or something bad, it was always envisioned as a classroom. It was something where you you mm. are learning mm. what you failed to learn in this life. Even the whole idea of karma and reincarnation is you go around as many times as it takes to eventually get liberated. Right. And if you read the the early Christians like Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and all that, they whatever they believed about the afterlife, it was always an educational process that you went through, whether it was... Hmm. a day or 10 billion years it was this this right. process of soul making of eventually getting liberated from the things you were hung up on yeah. um and that's kind of what's happening in this movie right uh totally. whatever is going on right he's he's I, I, right like you said i've read 10 years and i've read ten thousand years that he was in this loop and i think in the original story which i again i don't remember i think it was was it written by Danny Rubin, I think. Mm. Um, the the movie was originally supposed to start where he was in the loop already. Oh. And and I believe it was much darker and it was I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like 
it wasn't just 10 years. It was like thousands of years yeah. that, that he was stuck in this loop. And I think, yeah. you know, certain people have, have like, hold on, where's the one little thing that I, that I looked up? I think somebody said in the movie, there's 38 days depicted, 38 specific days okay. depicted, you know, with the different scenes that are happening in the, in the loops. But I think Harold Ramis or, or one of those guys had said that in the movie world, it was about 10 years of, yeah. of loop. But yeah. in the original story, it was more like a, probably a, like a thousand years or something like yeah. that. It was a much darker story of him like really suffering for a long yep. time, <laughs> which yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine the idea of um, 10 years of the same day, which is one of the things that always freaked me out when I was a religious person Yeah, was the idea of eternity. Yes, yeah. And this idea of like in, in, in the case of Groundhog Day, Bill Murray's reliving the same day for 10 mm-hmm. years. So the idea of in in your your average mainstream evangelical Christian church that sure. I grew up in was that we were going to die and we were going to go to heaven and it right. was we were just going to be there and it was going to be basically the same shit for eternity, Ever. for yeah. for infinity, which yeah. we can't even comprehend – 80 years, you know, I'm 40 and the yeah. idea of contemplating another 40 is mind boggling to me. So yeah. the idea of contemplating a thousand years, a million years, an infinite amount of years is, it sounds like hell to me. Sure. <laughs> and I do remember one time, and maybe you can elaborate on this. Yeah. One time you gave a sermon where you talked about the afterlife in in terms of it being better every day, that it gets better and better yeah. and better and better. Now, at the time for me, and I'll just be frank with you, at the time for me, that was comforting because I was still in that world of believing sure. in the afterlife and this idea that like, okay, well, that sounds less horrifying <laughs> yeah, like than just doing the same thing over and over again. Now even – but now today, as what I would call, you know, a, a hopeful atheist, yeah. even that sounds – horrifying the idea that going and (laughs) living every day for eternity that is slightly better than the day before it still sounds terrifying (laughs) well and and so let me let me give you a few things to think about and also sidebar watch the good place watch the whole show i haven't watched Um, it yet it's it's you should watch the whole show if you absolutely will not watch the whole show watch the first season and then watch the finale okay um because it is (laughs) it's brilliant it takes a dip in quality about three quarters of the way through but it ends so well and it starts so well um so what we were talking about was when you when you gosh there's you you can cut out what's not relevant but but you know most people think about heaven and hell when you when you look at the early christian real kind of mystical geniuses who set up the what became the foundation of philosophy of of the theology um, a huge portion of them believed in in what we now talk about as universal restoration, which was that there there was no eternal hell. They really believed that if the God of the universe was love, then everything in the end had a, had to be moving towards restoration and healing and wholeness. So so there was this idea of the apocatastasis, which is a lot like the Jewish idea, the tikkun olam, which is the fixing of the world. And everything's moving in that direction. And so the afterlife would also be moving in that direction. And the reason that we get metaphors of hell and things like that is because it's very possible that after this life, we pass through various other stages of existence, some of which are not great, um, and some which are, you know, shaped by our choices where we're learning and we're going back and forth. 
but that would take eons, right? And so then what I was what I talked about in that particular instance and and this is legit. I had the same experience growing up. I was always told, well, heaven in the afterlife is like a church service that just goes on forever. And I was like, that <laughs> definitely makes me reconsider hell because that does not sound fun. It sounds especially, more like my idea of hell. Especially for those of us who that who at the time still bought into the whole like idea of Christianity. But we're not huge fans of the church services. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. And, and, and again, for me, like I am I, – I'm still very much a Christian but of a very different cloth. Um, right. uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a whole, whole different creature there. Yep. But, uh, but, but there, was a, there was a theologian that I love, a kind of a mystical philosopher named Gregory of Nyssa. And he basically said that in the afterlife we fall into an infinite abyss of contemplation. And his – his idea was if God truly is infinite love and infinite goodness without end, then we would be dropping into that infinity for infinity. He also believed that we were created or we exist with a capacity for infinity. So the afterlife would be perpetual transformation and it would be getting better the problem is when you try to imagine that you can't conceive of what it is because like right. each day being better than the next is like well i'm you know i'm gonna have ice cream that tastes better tomorrow <laughs> than it does and i'm gonna like drive a bentley or then i'm right, gonna be right. really happy <laughs> if that were true uh philosophically intellectually I, I don't know conceptually we would probably move beyond those concepts altogether relatively quickly yeah. and who knows man the greatest good might actually be existence in a state that we can't even fathom right now. Right. There are those who would argue that the greatest good is that when you close your eyes, you rest and that's the end. But we have to evolve to a point that we can realize that's the greatest good and that's the letting go that um, needs to take place. That's the disentangling from karma. I, um, I'm i pretty committed to the apocatastasis and the fixing of all things, but but... But I'm very committed to the fact that it looks like nothing we can imagine or conceive, yeah. uh, which is why, like, you know, uh, you talk about um, some people, you know, talk about like the Hindu idea of liberation and the Buddhist idea of nirvana. And they're different. But are they really right? Um, nirvana is nothing. But what is nothing? It's no thing that you can conceive. So without going too far off the deep end, I think what matters is so many different religious systems a lot of Eastern systems and a lot of Christian systems at the beginning posit that there is this idea of going through cycles and the cycles are educational and transformational and they are getting us to let go of things that we're attached to and also shifting our motivation. So, so again, that thing of like falling into perpetual good, your idea of good would be changing. Mm. Um, and where that's super interesting to me, if you listen to that and you think that's a bunch of metaphysical bullshit, that's fine. Because what's interesting is you have people like Carl Jung who say the reason that we imagine that is because it gives us a way to think about something that's real in the day-to-day. -day. Now, again, I believe in that stuff, but I also can see where Jung is right. It cycles back around, and his theory was – when he saw situations where we would steer ourselves over and over and over into the same pattern, even the same disastrous situation over and over and over again, you know, you're, you're in a series of relationships, you're in a series of divorces, they're all different people, but they're always the same person. 
um, you know, you, you, you keep kind of like finding yourself back where you started. And what Jung said was, that's your unconscious mind steering you into the same situation over and over and over again because there's something you need to learn right. and there's something you need to heal. And yeah. you will go around as many times as it takes to <laughs> learn the lesson and do the healing. But for Jung, that wasn't a pessimistic assessment. He right. didn't look at that and go, look how broken we, we, we are. He looked at that and said, look how much we want to be healthy, that yeah. we will revisit the same wound over and over and over again until until it's healed. And um, I think that, that I was going to comment while you were talking about that. What struck me was the idea that for those of us that currently aren't religious, that is the beauty of what religion can teach us, right? Is this right. idea of, of looking at these things. Big religious ideas can be very simply put in our real world lived experiences. 100%. And that, and that was the genius of Jung and Joseph Campbell is when they saw those things as a metaphor. And right. so, again, for me, I exist in a world where, yes, of course, they're a metaphor. And also they might also be a, a look into, into right. like deeper metaphysical reality. But right. they can be both. Right. And if for you, you know, you, you're a humanist and you're like, I can't go. There, that's fine. Like there's right. still so much value in the art and the metaphor and the symbol. It's something that's held the human imagination since our existence as a species it's probably something they're they're worth paying attention to. But one of the things that comes up archetypally over and over again, over again in system after system and culture after culture is that we sort of die before we die. Right? We mm -hmm. go through these moments in life where we experience I think the easiest way to say it would be like ego death, mm -hmm. where we might even experience a shattering of our personality. Uh we lose what's most important to us. We lose our sense of who we think we are. And there's so many great teachers who tell us that can actually be a powerfully transformative thing if we can roll with it, you know? And, and totally. so this idea of, of Bill Murray saying, I've killed myself so many times I don't even exist anymore. There's the negative side of that, but then there's the, the positive side of that where it's like, you know, what does it mean to to let yourself die and be reborn? I mean, it's in my mind, it's the most beautiful thing that we can experience right. in our lives. We touched on it last time and... and you know, I won't, again, I'm not going to talk about specifics, but my personal journey was the darkest place I've ever been, you know, mm -hmm. and it, and it took, uh, very loving friends in my life to, to pull me from the brink of, of, to be frank, suicide, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yep. through that, <laughs> the things that I learned, man, I would not trade them for the world, you right. know, like I feel so much more open and so much more. Uh, grateful for that experience, you know, to say yeah. like, oh, okay, I see what that could teach me. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a firm believer just because I like living this way that, that you know, everyone's on the journey yeah. um, and we all handle what we can handle. So we're all right. Bill Murray somewhere in that process. Uh, and yeah. then some people believe that process goes on after what you and I get to see in this right. in this lifetime. There's other people who believe it's happening simultaneously in parallel realities, right? but that's a whole other thing. I think it's a hard thing to wrap your head around it if you haven't experienced that, that the things that shatter you also remake you, right? I had a mentor who always used to say, breakdown is breakthrough, but you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. Like, yeah, I'm with yeah. you, man. I have, I have the semicolon tattoo for a reason. Like the, the things that have proved the most transformative in my life are also things I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And I'm grateful for them, yeah. but I, I, you know, I wouldn't have signed up for them.
<laughs> in advance the, the especially especially like the difficult experiences where you know you're like i'm like i've been here before i feel yeah. like i should know better i've been yeah. here before that's my groundhog day i'm like this this happened to me again and and can i blame anyone but me um and but that's yet... difficult because i remember i remember specifically speaking of my particular uh experience that i went through i remember a time where i was in the middle of it so probably you know, uh, two years into this four year excursion that I was on and you telling me after, after a particular thing had happened and you saying, it's okay if you want to continue on this journey, but just remember that it's probably not going to change. Like the, the, the thing that is hurting you right now, most likely will hurt you again. And this is the thing that you either have to say, like, I'm okay with this. And this is part of my life or maybe something (laughs) Needs to change, and I rem- yeah. I specifically remember you telling me that like when I was about halfway through, it, and I was like, "Now nah, I'm going to go with this." Yeah, and then it, it destroyed me. You yep. know what I mean? And in the end, you were right. Like it was, it was, it happened again, and yep. yeah, it was. I I chose that path. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I gave you that advice because it'd been given to me. I had a friend who right? sat me down <laughs> as a psychologist who I respect a lot, and he said, "Just remember." That, you know, the best indicator of the future is the past because that's all we have to work with. Right. And if you see a pattern that's repeated itself over and over again and you're it's like that last scene in train spotting, you're like, this time it's going to be different. <laughs> Chances are it's not going to be. Right. Um, and yet at the same time, I think what we need more than anything else in the world are friends who will hear our story. Yeah. Um, say, this is what I think. And then say, but you know what? I've got your back no matter what. Right. Um, not everyone can do that yeah. because it is frustrating to watch our friends make the same mistake over and over again. Yeah. But, you know, there's another thing Carl Jung did for me that was super valuable. Is he said, we, we usually think we know what people need and we're usually wrong because we don't <laughs> know what's going to finally cause the moment of transformation. And we don't know what's steering someone back into a situation where maybe they need to be there. And he right. said, what people need more than anything is someone who's willing to faithfully companion them on a daring misadventure. That mm. daring misadventure, I, I will never forget that till the day I die. It's such a good wow. phrase. And so, again, that's the thing of like saying, here's what I think. This is probably what's going to happen. And I love you too much not to tell you, but I, you're a grown up yeah. and I got your back and I'm going to be here right. um, and it'll be okay. And, mm-hmm. I, and I've said to friends and I've had friends say it to me, like, I think this is a pattern. I think yeah. you'll get out of the pattern when it's the right time and when you're ready. Yeah. And if you're not out of the pattern right now, you're not ready yet. And that's okay. Um, yeah. And that's what, that's what, uh, oh, I can't believe I can't remember her name, but the love interest in a way, that's what she does for him. And I hate the fact that I just reduced her character by calling her the love interest. She's really <laughs> the source of wisdom in this movie. They have that one conversation um, where she, he, he like, he has no agenda anymore. He's not trying to seduce her. He's not trying to win her hand. He just tells her what's going on and she listens to him and she believes him. She gives him an opinion and he just basically says like, will you just stay with me? And she stays Mm. with him for the rest of the day. She's a compassionate witness to what he's going through. And after that, everything changes for him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we need. I think that's what we need in life sometimes. Totally. Because I feel like sometimes... So often, I mean, I know I've been guilty of it. Is is trying to give your your advice to friends in a way where you feel like you can save them, right? Mm-hmm. Where you think that like your advice is going to somehow 
magically flip the switch. And I think as we get older, we realize that, like you said, we can talk to people and we can give our opinion. But honestly, the best thing we can do is just let our friends live their lives and experience the thing that they need to experience because we won't learn our lesson unless we experience it. And then to be supportive of that on the other side. Yeah, man. No matter what it is. Absolutely. And again, to, to compassionately witness, because right. there was a there was a psychoanalyst, I think his name was Masad Khan, something like that. And he had this theory that the reason people invented religion was because they needed to feel like their story, their experience and their pain was witnessed. Mm. Um, and he said that when we lost that uh, and people became less certain that God or the gods were watching even though our lives objectively got easier, our existential suffering increased because we were mm. suffering alone. And mm. so his whole theory was that psychoanalysis arose because people needed to witness their story mm. or they needed to know that their story was witnessed. And I think that the reason social media has arisen is the same thing. We need to feel like mm. someone sees what we're going through because the other aspect of Groundhog Day is we're going through the same things you know, and the way, on the one hand, Bill Murray's having the same day over and over again, but he's not. He's suffering in all these different ways, and no one sees it yeah. because he wakes up the next morning and no one knows that it happened. Right. <laughs> and that's why, again, that pivotal moment he has, they have that conversation, and she hears him, and she believes him, and she witnesses his pain and just holds it. And that yeah. thing of being a compassionate witness for people, sometimes to just say, like, I see what you're going through. Um, I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm also going to respect your right to define your own emotional reality. That is such a gift. Mm. Um, and it is so much more helpful than the, than the traps that we're in of trying to be seen in so many other ways and the ways that we do feel unseen because we're, we're trapped in loops that other people don't have the time, the energy or the memory to be aware of. Yeah. Or no matter how much you explain, can't see. Like, Mm-mm. you know what I mean? No. Because like, <laughs> how can one person ever fully understand what someone else is going exactly. through? Exactly. And that's the thing that I, that I do also, one of the many things that I love about this movie is how even though Bill Murray is repeating the same loop over and over and over again, and he has these people who are like in the loop and they don't remember what's going on. And in a way, it could be all about him. The people around him actually become more real as the movie goes on. Mm -hmm. Everyone around him is an object. By the end, he knows their story. He knows their personality. And even though he's just seeing the same day over and over again with all of them, they are real to him and they matter. Right. Um, And that's that's wild. He witnesses them as well, right? right? She does that thing for him one time and then he turns around. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. I dig this yeah. movie. Yeah. I also learned, you know, don't drive angry. That's a good lesson. I do really <laughs> love the scene where he kidnaps the groundhog. I also, and apparently the groundhog bit him a bunch of times when they filmed that. Did you see and he, that? And he had to get like a rabies shot. Yeah. 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 No, that was, that scene is hilarious when he's like talking to the, the, the groundhog. Oh my God. When he's driving. Mm-hmm. I just want to say, uh, talking about like specific things that made me laugh. The one yeah. thing that I wrote down that like had me rolling was so when he comes downstairs each morning, and he the one morning he like talks to the lady, he asks for uh, an espresso or a cappuccino, and yep. she's like, I, I I could check with the kitchen, you know, I, I don't mm-hmm. know, and 
And the one day he comes down and he's, and he's, I think it's like the second or third day. I don't know, whatever. And he's like, do you ever have deja vu? And she's like, I don't know, but I could check with the kitchen. <laughs> Dude, that was brilliant. It's, it's like, what I'm saying. There's good comedy. So many good bits in this movie. The, uh, his, his friend from high school, who's the insurance salesman, oh like God. Ned Ryerson, I never get tired of any of their interactions when he pulls the guy close and just holds him. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know what you're doing today, but can you take off? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he runs away. And he, yes. the one time when he punches yes. him. Oh my God. And, oh man. The one that was like really, man, like again, talking about like the different, like emotional yeah. uh, trajectories that this movie takes is when he finally embraces the homeless guy. That is and, the best. And realizes that the homeless the guy is going to die that day no matter and what he tries does. as hard as he can to save the guy like at some point his 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 attitude goes from selfishness to selflessness and he, he can't change it and yep. like that was like so emotional and so oh my god heavy right i like, cried yeah literally yeah. like yeah so heavy and he calls him pop he calls him dad he calls him father Ugh. like it's such a Oh my God! Like what a scene! What that that like you said the inevitability where he has to accept the fact that there's some things he can't change, so moving. And I feel like that um, sort of speaks to the idea that we feel after maybe somebody has passed, right? Like yeah, this this idea of like oh, what if I had to live it again? You know? Oh my like, God! What what could I do? Yeah, and. Probably the answer is nothing, right? Like No, it is. It is. And I will say this. That's the – it's such a natural reaction when something bad happens is to think I should have done something different. And if this is too deep, you can cut this later. But I know with my brother because, you know, my brother brother died by suicide. And so I had to reconcile this intense, like, what should I have done differently? And I remember I was there – this is too heavy. You're definitely going to have to cut this. That night – a hazmat team came in to to clean his house up and the woman who was leading the hazmat team grabbed me and she's like i want to talk to you um and i was like yeah 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 and so she asked me a few questions asked how i was doing and she said two things that have stayed with me forever one she was like you're you have some kind of religion or spirituality don't you and i was like i do and she said i can tell i can always tell people who do from people who don't Uh, But the second thing she said is, she said, I want to tell you something. She goes, I do this every day. And she said, you are going to start going through a long litany of all the things you should have done differently and all the choices you could have made that kept your brother alive. And she's like, I want you to realize it's all a lie. There's nothing you could have done. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you could have done. This was going to happen. He died from this like he died from a disease you might have made a choice that might have resulted in a day here or a day there. But she's like, you need to accept the fact that this was out of your control, yeah. right? And that's what it really boils down to is control. Because this thing of going, even the guilt and the self-punishment of going, if only I had done this thing differently, this very tragic situation would have played out in a different way, gives us a sense of control. And it's it's not always true. Sometimes it is. Sometimes, sure, you're like, God, I never should have said that one thing. Or, but but in reality, often not. And so I love that they put that bit in the story where there's that thing that he can't change no matter what he does, and it's and it's life and death, which matters, right? There's there's a reason that Ned Ryerson, who's maybe the funniest bit in the movie, is a life insurance salesman. Like they're saying something about that about life insurance, right? 
life insurance is a joke. Um, which again, get life insurance. That's fine. He buys a bunch at the end of the movie. But there's something which I have not even thought about till its depth yet about this whole idea of what does life insurance really mean? Yeah, and and I think that's one of the years and years and years ago. One of the things that very uh, greatly changed my life was um, reading uh, the writings of uh, this uh, Stoic philosopher uh, Epictetus. Yeah, and coming to terms with this idea that pretty much <laughs> there's nothing in this world that you can control. Nothing. Right. right. Except right. for the only thing you have control over is your reaction to the things that happen around you. Yep. That's pretty much the only control you have. And when you're talking about that idea of like, you know, what you went through with your brother, which I can't I can't fathom. You know, I mean I have yep. my own memory of that situation, which is far removed from your own reaction, which is talking to him the day before it happened and talking about the Simpsons, you know, and yep. wondering well, what if we had talked a little bit longer, you know? And that's much further removed from what you experienced. But still, we have these questions and we have these oh ideas, God. you know? And, yeah. and But then when you look at things like the, the Stoic philosophies of Epictetus and others, each person lives their own lives. And yeah. the only control we have in the world is the way we react to the situations given to us, right? Like that's 100%. literally the only control we have in this Absolutely. world. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And and whether you believe there's a higher power, which I do, or you believe it's all chaos, which is which is also like a, a plausible reality, like it doesn't change the fact of that reality that that we can't control everything that's yeah. happening around us. And you know, Bill Murray in this movie is really free when he Fully embraces everything that's going on, but also stops trying to control in a way. He has to let go of... He he not only accepts the death of this character, um, Mm. but one of the things I love about the kind of like romance in the movie is he completely lets go of trying to manipulate her. Yep. You know, you have these two beautiful nights that they have together... The one night where he just tells her what's going on and she gives him advice. And all they do is is they they fall asleep next to each other. Right. And then when they like end up together at the end of the movie, there's a very telling line where he like grabs her and kisses her. And she says, oh, why, why weren't you like this last night? All you did is fall asleep. And again, it's the same thing where you realize like he's not trying to um, – he's not trying to sleep with her. He's not trying to – to end up with her. He's, he has no agenda except genuinely, legitimately being there with another human being who he really does love, you know, at this point in the story, who he's 100% totally. fallen in love with. And I think I think you're right. Uh, this idea of recognizing, you know, what we can control and what we can't. And some would say the only thing you control is you. And even that is, once you throw depth psychology into the equation and unconscious motivation, even that is questionable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But but again, but again, it doesn't mean that we don't have agency and it doesn't mean that we don't try. And that's where like you can get into the really fun things with this and you're like, what's happening? Is he in hell? Is he in re- being reincarnated? Is he in a time loop? Is he dreaming? Does yeah. it matter? One little point that I don't know, maybe you can talk a little bit more about this is um, it's interesting that his he doesn't ever get to that place of being OK with everything and calming down. Until he tries killing himself, until he tries experiencing death and trying like to. So it it speaks a lot of our own (laughs) 
existential yeah. dread of death and coming to terms with our own mortality, right? Yep. And then maybe when we somehow get to that point where we can kind of contemplate our own mortality, maybe we can start really yeah. living and being yep. present. And that's the whole, that's the whole idea of, right, that, that the contemplation of death actually makes life more real. Yeah. Uh, Buddhists teach that. Eastern Orthodox monks teach that. It's this notion of the finitude, knowing that there's a stop, makes it real. The irony, of course, is that for this character, he doesn't know that there will ever be a stop. He yeah, basically yeah. is functionally immortal when he when he does it. But but that has a message as well, which is the dying before we die. There's a Jungian psychologist who believes that the best way to respond to suicide, suicidal ideation, the desire that you want to kill yourself, is to eventually realize that that in many cases the desire to kill yourself is a misinterpreted message from your own soul that a part of you mm. needs to die. Mm. That something in you, that something about your life has come to an end and needs to be put to death. And he says what happens is we misinterpret that message and we think that all of us needs to die and that's not true. So he says what we need to do is we need to commit egocide instead of suicide. And that's, um, that's beautiful really hard. I remember you talk, telling me that also <laughs> mm. when I was in the, the deepest part of my yeah. like, suicidal ideation. And, yeah. and now at the time, it, again, you were, you, know, you were giving me your advice and you were being there yeah. as a friend and you were loving me. And, and yep. at the time, it didn't really make much sense to me. You know? yep. And now, no, yeah, you're right. You're yep. right. There yeah. was a huge part of me that was like codependent and was doing yep. this thing over and over again. And I thought that if I didn't have that thing, yep. life wasn't worth living. When it was like, no, maybe just get rid of this thing. Yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. that and thing again, is the thing that needs to die. Absolutely. And again, we'll stress this because I'm going super deep here. But I, I don't know why we wouldn't because it's a big part of the movie. Like if you are struggling with suicidal ideation, there are hotlines and there are resources. And you should 100% talk to somebody. And you should 100% have a friend that's on 24-hour standby who's going to pick up no matter what. And all of that. That is true. That doesn't stop being true. Right. That is absolutely real. And yes, this is very, very true. Like recognizing there is a part of me that needs to die. Maybe even everything about myself that I think matters needs to die and go away. Um, but that doesn't mean that that life ends or that I as an organism end or that I right. need to destroy myself right. literally, right? Because right. we're always misinterpreting things that are supposed to be symbolic or psychological or spiritual as literal messages. Absolutely. And I've been there too. You know, there was, there was a season, uh, you know, a few years ago where I absolutely did not want to be alive. And I did not, like, this is an arrogant thing to say, but I did not think I was capable of that because I'd watch my brother go through his suicidal crisis and take his own life and other people. And I just was like, I'm such a hopeful person that won't ever happen to me. And so when it yeah. did, I was like, oh, I kind of don't want to be alive. And that was shocking. And it was shattering coming out the other side of it. Uh, and having to embrace my absolute powerlessness before it. Again, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. I see the gift no. in it now. And it did. There were things that I thought mattered in my life that I needed to let go of. And I had to die before I die. Which, ironically enough, has fundamentally altered my relationship with literal life and death. Uh, where I'm also way less afraid to actually die 
than I used to be. Um, Interesting. Yeah, strangely enough. No, that's and that's the thing for me and, and my the point of life that I'm at right now is I'm so glad that I made it through that, right? And I'm so happy that I get to experience life and I get to experience my friends and, yeah. and, and I'm in a place where, you know, the 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 entire point of life for me is experiencing love, is experiencing friendship, yeah. is experiencing um experiences, you know, like that's yeah. it. Yeah. Like yeah. work, I don't give a I don't give a crap about it. You know, I don't give a yeah, nothing. Yeah, yeah. All that stuff doesn't matter to me at this point. It's it's all about just living life to enjoy the things that that are around me, right? And 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 going yeah. on hikes and seeing sunsets and 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 laughing with my friends around a campfire. That's all that matters, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's still that existential existential dread, and <laughs> it's all yeah, it's all complicated. <laughs> and maybe that's, you know, maybe that's part of the boat ride on the planet Earth. I don't know. Yeah, like I, I you know, it's it's um sometimes it just means that you care. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a bad thing. I you know, I study all these spiritual systems that talk about like radical detachment. And I'm like, yeah, and I kind of care about some stuff. <laughs> like right. I'm, I'm willing yeah. to suffer a little bit because I care about some stuff and and yeah. I don't, you know, uh, there's there's a limit to to how far I'm willing to go with with being stoic, um, mm-hmm. and I'm right. not sure that's a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Is, is, I don't know. Is there a bad thing? You know what I mean? Like, is there any right answer to anything? I don't. I don't know, man. I don't, I don't believe. I, 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 I think I, I was thinking. I don't know how to word this, but recently I was in response to a lot of the stuff that I've been seeing on Facebook and mostly from my religious friends or religious folks that I knew from the past. One of the things that has struck me recently, I feel like certainty is a cop out. Like yeah. I feel like certainty is a a thing that we do when we're afraid to think about the things that are hard. Yeah. You know? Like it's a it's a way to say, Oh, I know. And that's and that's easy. And then you just put it you yeah. just I know. This is the answer. It's one hundred percent true. Yeah. When the things that these folks are usually referring to are unknown or unknowable. Yeah. Right. Like (laughs) when it comes to spirituality, it's unknowable. There's no proof one way or the other, you know? And yeah, uh, well, and that, and that's, yeah, that's the genius. Even in Christianity, that's the genius of the mystical system is that it reminds us that there's a lot that we can't know. The things that are most important, we probably can't know. Right. Right. That's the whole thing of apophatic theology. And, and also doesn't mean that we can't have fun with it and try, right? That's like origin. My great teacher talked about the importance of discussion over definition and exploration over explanation. Yeah. And it helps to have a system and an ethos. And, and again, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I live by a creed of sorts, but it's, um, you know, we're between what we know and what we don't. We're between mystery and certitude. And, and I, and I sometimes think that, that the real value of detachment is to let us be really choosy about what we attach to. And the, the, real, mm. the real value of realizing the folly of certainty is to let us be choosy about the things that we, we decide to live as if they are certain. Right. You and I have talked about this before. Like I, I believe in, you know, that love is the most real thing in the DNA of the cosmos. And if I'm wrong, that's fine. I'd still mm-hmm. rather live as if that's true because that's a belief I can get behind. And in the grand scheme of things, who cares if I'm wrong? Like right. in the grand scheme of, of the co- of cosmic existence and right. the timeline of the universe, if right. I'm wrong about that, so what? It's fine. 
it's all good. Right. Yeah. This no, the exactly. the hubris in thinking that we need to figure all of it out in the tiny speck of reality that we are uh, is is amusing, to say the least. Yeah. No. And I think that's the that's the the world where when I say that I'm a hopeful atheist, it's I'm hopeful about that aspect of it is the idea that maybe one day I can get to a place where being OK with mystery and spirituality is 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 it right like yeah. that's the thing like that's at this point that's the only thing that could possibly yeah. get me excited about any of that stuff is yeah. is the idea that the mystery and the seeking of the mystery is is the beautiful thing right like is yeah, um that's all that you know the curiosity is, yeah yeah i i when i um when I got into, because again, I didn't, you know, my advanced graduate studies are not theological. They're phenomenological comparative religious studies and Jungian studies. And I remember some of my professors saying, like, a lot of us, we got into this. We we learned all the academics and it completely deconstructed what we believed. And then we became, like, very secular phenomenologists. And then a lot of us, eventually, we encounter that, like, second naivete where we choose to live as if it's true right. and that that as if those are two of the most powerful words in the human language because you choose to live as if it's true and i remember people like one of my professors saying like you know i started praying again and and i had friends who were like like robust intellectual academics who were like isn't that silly and you're like eh, i don't <laughs> care i choose to live as if it's true and it makes my life better and i yeah. and 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 they would come around to like another place of enchantment and belief but in a, in a different way and well, because there, is, there, there are a million things that are good about the idea of religion, right? There are, like, yeah. a, like and there, there, um, one guy that, you know, we, we were discussing earlier yeah. um, privately, uh, Science Mike, he talks a lot about the idea of, you know, I think he's, he still calls himself a Christian, but it, yeah. uh, similar to you, is it's a very different form of Christianity. The one thing that I like that he says a lot is this idea of holding that belief loosely. Yeah. He believes it. Right. Whatever that thing is that he believes. I don't know what his particular mm-hmm. theologies are, but he holds that and he believes it. But it's loose enough to know that, like, tomorrow something might change my mind. Yeah. Some, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and you actually see that in the movie in a really fun way. Uh, NPS. Well, I'll be curious to see what you choose to edit out of this and what you post, because like it's a long it, one. It's a ten, long of, one. <laughs> ten of our friends are going to listen and I'm going to get phone calls from three of them about this because they're going to be yeah. worried about the state of my immortal soul. But um <laughs> But do you remember what Bill Murray says? Like at the very end, he's like, when he realizes that he's been liberated from the loop and he's like, we should move, we should stay here. And then he has this great line when he says, we'll rent it first. And that's the (laughs) genius of it where it's like, yeah, let's do this. And it's like, but also like, but also, yeah, let's give ourselves a little bit of an, of an escape clause. And that's kind of that, you know, a friend of mine, someone that I, um, have deep conversations with said to me recently, they're like, did you ever go through an atheist phase? And I said, you know, about 15 years ago, I read, um, when I was going to an Episcopal church, I read a good Episcopal is an atheist two days a week. And I was like, (laughs) I like that. Um, and that's the, you know, there's a kind of a, um, a beauty in that for me and like a flexibility uh, and a breathability that made a lot of sense. And yeah. that's that's fun. I, the interesting thing in this movie is, like, 
at the end, Bill Murray's not asking what higher power is putting him through this, right? At a certain point, he's like, here we are. Like, I'm going to go with it. And he learns what there is to learn, and he embraces the beauty in it. And he doesn't, he like lets go of the sort of metaphysical questions that could drive it, but he's not out of touch with them. Like clearly in the middle of the movie, he's angry and he feels trapped and he's, he's, you know, aware that it's going on. And I think, I think for me, everyone's different. For me, my relationship with the metaphysical and the spiritual and the theological is kind of in that place of like playful curiosity, permission to speculate and learn and believe, and also like comfort with not knowing, right? Yeah. And then it's it's a it's a whole lot uh, of freedom when you're liberated from the tyranny of the need to be certain. Yeah. Because um, it makes room for the new and it makes room for surprise. Yeah. Which is which is something else I love about this movie is even though he's stuck in the same loop he still finds room for the new and surprise. And he's still like, that's the whole point of the movie, right? He learns to grow in it. Right. And the, the best metaphor is the thing of him playing the piano. Even though yeah. he takes this, the lesson is for the first time every single day, it's still a different lesson. And by the yeah. end, he's a master at the instrument. Yeah. Um, she says, this is your first lesson. Yeah. <laughs> and it's his first lesson every time. And yet he's still learning. That's the, that's the genius of it. That's Which apparently, uh, one little aside on that is uh, whatever the one, not the when he's playing at the, like the club or whatever, but when he's like yeah. playing for her, it's yeah. actually supposedly that's actually him playing. He learned the piece. That makes sense because there were there were a few shots. I mean, you can always tell this was before CGI, I think, yeah. and you can always tell by the cuts when it's the actor playing and when it's not. Yeah. And there were a few scenes where I was like, I think that's actually him playing. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's good to hear. I also love that he was not great when he started. So there wasn't this idea that he he had this like natural talent. Also a great line. He says like, "Is right. this your first lesson?" Yeah, but my dad was a piano mover, so <laughs> Oh my just... god. <laughs> that's so funny. He's just Bill it's Murray's delivery, big... man. There's so many good one-liners in it. It's just it's a good, it's a well-executed movie. It's well done. Yeah, no, I think it was great, and the the comedy throughout was perfect. But it it also carried like, obviously, we've now I don't know what I'll edit this down to, but we've talked for two hours about this. Yeah, um, good luck, man. You're gonna have a hell of a time editing this. Have fun. Yeah, this, this is gonna be a tough one. I don't think we're gonna get down to an hour, but we'll try to get it down to less mm. than two. Um, Just cut it in such a way that I don't get calls from friends who are worried that I'm gonna go to hell. Dude, most of your friends think you're going to hell, anyways. It's probably true. Quickly, was there anything else? I know we, there's a bunch of stuff we didn't get to talk about. You wanted to talk about the X-Files episode. Yeah, I think, I mean, Bill Murray's best movie, maybe? Oh, wow. Uh, good question. That's hard for me because I feel as though there's other roles that I think he's just mm, chef's kiss in. Like, he's just... Yeah. So, like, in uh, Rushmore. Are you mm. familiar with the movie Rushmore? I, I, you, you just totally, totally made me stop my thought of saying this is his best movie because I have to go back and rewatch all the Wes Anderson stuff. I didn't think because when he, the character he plays in Rushmore, yeah. there's just some scenes where like the way he plays plays it is just ah so good. There's a scene where um, Max and him are I forget they're at some sort of uh, banquet or, or I don't, maybe after one of his plays or something. 
And Max is standing next to him and he says, so, because he knows he was like in Vietnam. Yeah. And he says, he goes, so were you in the shit? Bill Murray goes, yeah, I was in the shit. And just the way he delivers it yeah. is just, I don't know. It's Bill Murray. Oh. And then also him as the 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 psychologist, I guess, in um, <laughs> the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. Where yeah, I didn't even. He's the yeah, I totally forgot that for, whole part yeah, of his I mean, career. Yeah, like some well, of those roles, like, I feel like are p- pinnacle. Bill Murray. <laughs> are just so he's good. and he's so good in in Lost in Translation and and then to to roll back to like this era of movies, he's so good in What About Bob? So oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, right. a, in there's my a opinion, aside from Scrooged, there's uh, he cannot do any wrong. Aside from Scrooged, <laughs> yeah, and and Scrooge, I don't think Scrooge was his fault. I think he, I think he made a lot with not a lot in Scrooged. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So I'm assuming our next movie will not be a Bill Murray movie. Please, dear God, if there is, is I'm going to pray on my knees as an atheist. That we don't do a Bill Murray movie. All right. Time. Well, I'll, I'll as a non-atheist, I'll pray, and, and I think it'll work out that way. Uh, check out the lost episode of Farhead Sweat, the X-Files episode. <laughs> check out Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise. I got to watch that for one. For a, yeah, yeah. a fun action version of Groundhog Day that, that honestly, I think is a, is a great movie. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And then um, hopefully next episode, we won't do a Bill Murray episode. We have been talking about having some guests on the show, which... Sure. I think we can pull off, hopefully, and maybe we'll do one yeah. sooner than we did this time around if, if life calms down a little bit. Um, but uh, I think I'll wrap this up. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Cinemartyr Podcast. Uh, we're so grateful that you hung out this long, and uh, we'll see you next time. Welcome to the Cinemartyr Podcast. This is a podcast where we watch movies and then we try to discuss... How's it going, boys? playing yesterday's tape. ...spiritual...